The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. It's so good to see you. We're so lucky. You know, I got a letter from someone who used to be a student here. And uh, where is the beginning of the letter? I don't know. Anyway, uh, from uh, Daisho, John Corso. And some of you remember him. Um, he moved to teach in the Midwest, Detroit area. And now he's a tenured faculty member, professor of art history at Oakland University. and most recently was teaching painters at Cranbrook Academy and he said when I attended and participated in the spiritual life of Hoenji I was fully aware of the lucky karma I had to be near such a treasure that has only become clearer to me now that I live several states and lakes distance away. Though I've sat with several groups here, I haven't felt the same sense of belonging that I did in Syracuse. This is probably evidence of my inadequacies as a student. It has convinced me that if there is a way to hear your teachings from afar and perhaps travel in the summers, that I need to make this happen. Though I've begun this letter several times in my head, I've never ended it. I suppose that's because what I really hope for is conversation. To, to hear from you, how you are, see your expression, things that a letter cannot provide. So perhaps I won't end this letter, but rather sign off for now, wishing you and the Sangha the joy that Rohatsu brings. He started the letter on December 8th, saying he was sitting with all of us in his heart. And uh, it really made me aware of, um, it's so easy to take for granted what we offer each other. And we don't realize it really until we can't be here. So especially for residents or near residents, oh, it's Sunday morning, I'm going to the Zen Center, okay. But to really feel, oh, wow, wow, I'm going to make that drive. I don't care what the weather is, right? To do this, to have this feeling. As usual, I'm preaching to the choir. You all made it. 
but you know each of you is an emissary for someone who isn't here each of you can take this to heart and realize that we just don't know and we all are aware of how fragile this temporary existence of ours is but we just don't know how long we have to actually be able to practice in this room together. As you know, some people can't even get here because of physical disabilities. And we're practicing with them and for them, right? But to really taste the gift of this practice, I was thinking about several things having to do with that. Oh, look, here's his first page. Maybe I left some of these things out that I should tell you. Ah, yeah. Well, mostly it's about why he should have written sooner and how the uh, Zen Center remains strong in his heart and how important the newsletter has been for him. But, uh, yeah, basically what I told you is what he wrote. But I, I've been thinking a lot about this treasure of our uh, sitting together in this, in a way, implausible treasure. And here we are in the city of Syracuse. And we're sitting in a sangha. We are part of a sangha that was established in 1972. And so, you know, this is, this is pretty remarkable. We're one of the longest consistently operating Zen groups in America. And he wrote that letter on Rohatsu Day, the Day of Enlightenment of Shakyamuni Buddha. And you, many of you were here uh, sitting Rohatsu. Many of us were at Dabisatsu and had a most extraordinary December 8th. And at the time, I didn't think of it, but you know, it was just a month after the election. And the day before that, we had a, a, a special homage to Leonard Cohen one month after his passing. So he passed on the eve of the election. And I was reminded of this because of my own sense of how irritable myself and others have been there's a kind of low level, just under the surface. Maybe some of you have felt this, um, but I've, I've seen a lot of people kind of react very quickly, um, lose it. Maybe not so obviously, but you can just sense this uh, kind of miasma of what the hell is going on? What are we going to do? Every 
somebody I know who had difficulty with the election. And I know some people who were very happy about it, so I don't mean to assume anything. But everyone I know who had serious uh, feelings of anguish about it has had to deal with that for this past, whatever it is now, month and a week, a little over that. Today's the 18th. Huh? No one knows, but it's okay. We, we are hmm? 18. So we are about um, a month and 10 days. Anyway, um, so I think we all felt, okay, we're going to really seriously practice with motivation that we've never experienced before. We are really aware of how important it is to have this sincere and dedicated practice. And let's not get caught up. Let's not get hooked by the emotional reactivity we feel. And let's really practice so that what our responses come from is the hara, the heart, not from the cogitation and all of the conceptualizing and fear and anxiety that's so enticing, right? It's really seductive, isn't it? But you know, when you're sitting, you can actually feel the difference between that mental cogitation and the breath-centered, just awareness. This is a physiological thing. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? You can actually feel it. So everybody, when you drop down and you just feel this breath, there's such a sense of the ultimate, this boundlessness that we just recited, right? The boundless nature of this, which is not locked in to any one particular decision-making process or national uh, event or international emergency or anything. It is just this moment unfolding as it is. And when we really can come from this, it's so different from what we normally give way to. This irritation... um, that I'm talking about. I was looking at this uh, wonderful book, Taking the Leap by Pema Chodron, thinking that maybe she would be helpful before I murdered somebody. Uh And uh, she talks about Chogyam Trungpa, her teacher, describing practice as being completely present. We all know that. And saying it is not a vacation from irritation. We like to think that if our practice is real, we won't feel these negative emotions. But actually what it means is we are aware of them in ways that don't allow them to take control. Right? It's a very different thing. 
If we can be aware of the irritation that's lurking just beneath the surface, it's less likely that it's going to jump out and bash somebody in the head. So she talks about her teacher stressing that this basic practice which is epitomized by the instruction to return again and again to the immediacy of our experience, no matter how it is, no matter whether we like it or not, to the breath, the feeling, or other object of meditation, uncovers a complete openness to things just as they are, without conceptual padding. It allows us to lighten up and to appreciate our world and ourselves unconditionally. And all the chanting that we've done this morning in English really is about this, lightening up and appreciating the world as it is. Whether it's Bodhisattva's vow or Hakuin Zenji's song of Zazen, that's what it's about. And yet, and, and yet, we're living in a very serious time. It's very tempting to think, okay, I won't get caught or hooked by my negative emotions, and the way not to do that is just think of Zen practice as a way of forgetting about what's going on. This is a really subtle matter. Well, let's take the long view. Okay, looking at this selection from the point of the mountain, it's just a little blip. So why get involved? This is a question that I think many people may have. Like, it's so much easier if I just take the long view and let what's happening happen. And after all, in seven generations, but you know, our Native American friends are always in the present moment preparing for the seventh generation. They don't just say, okay, I'll take the seventh generation view and I won't pay attention to what's happening now. If we don't pay attention, there's no way we can care for the seven generations that follow us. And some of you have children or nieces or nephews and you know how intense this period of time is to Say, okay, the election's over, that's what happened. All right, let's just get back to business as usual. There is no usual to get back to because civil liberties are clearly going to be trampled on. It's starting already. We already know because of various appointments that are being made that big business will do very well until the climate crisis catches up with it in a rather unfortunate way.
and that's inevitable. You have to be very short-sighted to foster nothing but big business success. So what's that depend on? We already know that there are serious incursions being made in the rights of women, the rights of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered people, the rights of immigrants who had very few rights to begin with. We already know that racism is alive and well and being stoked up every moment. I don't have to tell you about the climate crisis initiatives that are now going to be blocked. And I was reading in the Times, after being at DBZ, I had three weeks of New York Sunday Times to go through, so I don't know what date this was, but it's relevant. This was from December 4th. It was written by someone named George Yancey. Anybody know him? He's an African-American professor, and he's been put on the professor watch list. Some of us are old enough to remember the McCarthy period. It's happening again. He teaches philosophy at Emory University, and he's the author of Black Bodies, White Gazes, and another book called Look, a White. So he says his inclusion on a new watch list is intended to shame him into silence. This is another very subtle but pernicious thing that's going on. What is this watch list? It's called the Professor Watch List. It's a new website created by a conservative youth group known as Turning Point USA. So professors who are saying things that they don't agree with are being put on this list. But it's just some know-nothing peepering group. You know. But it's it's not just like, I mean, that's how the Third, you know, third Right came out of a know-nothing peepering group. And this is being promoted through social media as a way of protesting uh, what they consider to be oppressive liberal thought. That there's only one way to think in an ac academic setting. So this is their response to that. And what he says about it is, thank you, the watch list appears to be consistent with a nostalgic desire, quote, to make America great again, unquote, and to expose and oppose voices in academia that are anti-Republican or express anti-Republican values. For many black people, making America great again is especially threatening as it signals a return to a more explicit and unapologetic racial dystopia. For us, dreaming of yesterday is not a privilege, not a desire, but a nightmare. The professor watch list is essentially a new species of McCarthyism 
especially in terms of its overtones of disloyalty to the American Republic. Does that help? So, of course, for this professor and many, many others in positions of authority, whether they have tenure or not, there's a sense of uh, a real sense of danger. There's a sense of being put in a position uh, not only of being threatened from outside, but of being pushed into a kind of self-censorship. Like, what can I really say? You know, what are, what, how, how is this going to affect me in terms of the authorities who are responsible for me to have this job, who are going to uh, listen to students who are angry, who have a sense of being um, threatened by my way of thinking or my pedagogical approach. So he continues, honestly, being a black man, I had thought I had been marked enough as bestial, as a criminal, as inferior. I have always known of the existence of that racialized scarlet letter. It marks me as I enter stores. The white security guard never fails to see it. It follows me around at predominantly white philosophy conferences. I am marked as different, not because I am different, but because the conference space is filled with whiteness. It follows me as white police officers pull me over for no other reason than because I'm black. As Franz Fanon writes, I am overdetermined from without. But in addition to that, now people are being feared, uh, feared as un-American. The House Un-American Activities, right? Yeah. I did hear about this on the radio, and I also heard that many professors are at, trying to get on that list. <laughs> like, yeah. this list sounds like a good list to be on. So if it's filled, then it's not threatening anymore. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, it's really important that that happen, that more and more people put themselves at risk in that way. But he, he talks in, in, in an interesting way about adjusting. He says, I refuse to be philosophically and pedagogically adjusted. What would that mean? Adjust to what? all the things, the list's value system. Mm, the value system that right now is poised to be the value system of what? Of the majority, amongst other things. The United States of America. Yeah. Now, it's possible that it was always the value system right. and that many of us were just content to see all of the pro-democracy movements, liberation movements, as something that could really change that underlying value system. 
And actually, we thought it had, right? Many of us, anyway. Speaking for myself, I really believed that two terms of Obama, we could count on many of the changes that occurred. Clearly, there weren't changes that were deeply, what? That were deep enough to counter what came next. Because really, what came next, we, some people are talking about this as a coup d'etat. It didn't just happen. It's based in the how many years? How was this country formed? On the backs of whom? Mm -hmm. On land taken from whom? So there's, you know, the reality and what the ideal looks like that we enjoyed. But anyway, about adjustment. To be philosophically adjusted is to belie what I see as one major aim of philosophy, to speak to the multiple ways in which we suffer, to be a voice through which suffering might speak and be heard, and to offer a gift to my students that will leave them maladjusted and profoundly unhappy with the world as it is. Isn't that interesting? I mean, really, when we talk about what it is to teach, and I put myself in this category, even though I'm not supposed to say anything political from this uh, perspective, but I hope you understand that this is more than a question of Republican versus Democrat or you know, contemporary political situation, that it's much more than that, that it's about what it means to speak of saving all beings from suffering. What is our vow? If not to be, as he puts it, maladjusted and profoundly unhappy with the world as it is. The world of injustice he's speaking about, okay? The world that it has been good for a very small group of people and quite bad for most others. He says he wants his students to engage in the process of freeing ideas, freeing their philosophical imaginations. I want them to lose sleep over the pain and suffering of so many lives that many of us deem disposable. I want them to become conceptually unhinged, to leave my classes discontented and maladjusted. So I think the people who are joining this watch list voluntarily have that feeling. You know, please, students, put me on that list. Because I want to stir things up in a way that is going to make you look deeply at what your life is for. What can you do? 
So then he quotes a speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave in 1963 when he said, I say very honestly that I never intend to become adjusted to segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I never intend to adjust myself to the madness of militarism, to self-defeating effects of physical violence. And then George Yancey ends, if it is dangerous to teach my students to love their neighbors, to think and rethink constructively and ethically about who their neighbors are and how they have been taught to see themselves as disconnected and neoliberal subjects, then yes, I am dangerous. And what I teach is dangerous. So why am I focusing on this today? Well, I think, you know, just coming from it personally and feeling this, this underlying sense of things should not be this way. And what am I going to do about it? What I find myself doing is something that really I cannot continue to do, which is existing in a state of near amnesia. And I can't remember anything. I'm forgetting everything, because what happens if I actually look at what's going on? Then, indeed, I will be forced into a very difficult awareness. And if I ignore that, then I'm more dangerous than the kind of danger he's talking about. Then I have the danger of being ignorant of what is so needed, the kind of awareness that comes from our practice that allows us to take action when action is needed and not just say, well, I don't really understand this and it'll go away someday soon. Hmm? So there's no formula, I'm sorry, Sabuti, there's no formula for how to act, right? Each one of us is going to be confronted with a situation in the next day. And how are we going to deal with that? We have no formula, but we do have this practice that brings us back to the present again and again. And I, uh, as I say, Pema Chodron is also, is always a, a helpful person to read when we're wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? How can I live with this? I wanted to read something she wrote. 
the practice is to train in not automatically fleeing from uncomfortable tenderness when it arises. By tenderness, she means being with the suffering of others, by really understanding our own suffering, our own inability, our own sense of helplessness or hopelessness. So to train in not automatically fleeing from this. A person does something that brings up unwanted feelings, and what happens? Do we open or close? Usually we involuntarily shut down, yet without a storyline to escalate our discomfort, we still have easy access to our genuine heart. Wonderful? This statement is so important. When we feel threatened by someone else or a situation, political or otherwise, the tendency is to want to shut down, go, you know, turn away from it, close, right? No? Yes? Yes? Okay. I think it's true for most of us. Maybe some of us are able to stay completely open, but I think for a lot of us we feel like, I can't deal with that. And then, shutting down, right? But what about if we don't have a storyline? The storyline itself, as she puts it, escalates our discomfort, but in a way that doesn't allow it to be as it is. But instead, what does the storyline add? Hmm? Yeah, what does the storyline add to that discomfort? The helplessness, in my case. You can't act. Or it takes us into the realm of our own personal conditioning, right? We have all kinds of ways of dealing with discomfort that haven't worked before, but that doesn't stop us from using them. So we get very caught up in our own storyline our own narrative about our own lives. Well, that's really beyond me, but I'll tell you about this. <laughs> and by doing so, we can avoid having to have our hearts open to what we find so threatening, so confusing, so upsetting, and avoid seeing the whole, which is all of us together, not just our own personal storyline. So without a storyline to escalate our discomfort, that means the personal discomfort, falling into the personal storyline, as opposed to the discomfort, the suffering that we are seeing when we have our eyes wide open and our hearts open too. If we don't insert that storyline, we still have easy access to our genuine heart. And maybe we don't even really trust this genuine heart. Maybe that's part of our issue. 
know, is there really a genuine heart that I can access? How many of you feel, oh yes, of course, it's right here. Yeah, right here. Just shut up. Trust it. Yeah. Then she says, right at this point, access to the genuine heart. Right at this point, we can recognize that we are closing, allow a gap, and leave room for a change to happen. So again, you know, it's, it's about having the awareness of the irritation, therefore it doesn't jump out at someone. It's having the awareness of how difficult it is to encompass the suffering that is taking place and the initiatives that are taking place around us that are going to really have serious consequences. Not closing down to that. Feeling the discomfort. Allowing a gap. This is sitting. Really going into that gap. Going into this spacious mind. This genuine heart. This is what we come here to do. This is what we do every day at home in our own little rooms of just sitting. Just sitting. Might be a corner of your house, but you have a cushion to sit on or a chair. Might be at work, sitting in front of the computer with it, doing whatever it's doing, and just sitting. This is that allowing a gap and leaving room for change to happen. She says in Jill Bolte Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight, all of you probably know that, saw her YouTube. Oh, if you don't, it's worth going on YouTube. She gives a really great, um, I don't know what to call it really, uh, kind of dramatic assessment of having had a stroke and what happens. She's a scientist, neuroscientist. She points to scientific evidence showing that the lifespan of any particular emotion is only one and a half minutes. Imagine. What do we do with those one and a half minute long emotions? Add them to the layers, right? Cement them in. After that, she says, we have to revive the emotion and get it going again. Our usual process is that we automatically do revive it by feeding it with an internal conversation about how another person is the source of our discomfort. Or not only another person, but uh, we might say a national conversation or an international situation. Anything can be the source of our discomfort. But what do we do with it? Maybe we strike out at them or at someone else, all because we don't want to go near the unpleasantness of what we're feeling. This is a very ancient habit. This is important for us to remember. It's not just our own conditioning. It's an ancient habit. It's in our DNA. 
How do we care for ourselves? How do we, you know, protect number one? It's an ancient habit. It allows our natural warmth to be so obscured that people like you and me who have the capacity for empathy and understanding get so clouded that we can harm each other. When we hate those who activate our fears or insecurities, those who bring up unwanted feelings and see them as the sole cause of our discomfort, then we can dehumanize them, belittle them, and abuse them. And then Pema Chodron says, understanding this, I've been highly motivated to make a practice of doing the opposite. I don't always succeed, but year by year I become more familiar and at home with dropping the storyline and trusting that I have the capacity to stay present and receptive to other beings. So this is really what our practice must include. The reality check that we have to bring to our attention what's really going on what do I need to do to respond can't come from that ancient habit can't come from that storytelling that knee-jerk habit of rejection and maybe not hatred but dislike in any case So whether you participate in the Women's March on Washington, and this is of course open to people of all genders, or whether you simply do what you can locally to stand with those who are finding that the ancient ways of oppression that have been part of this country's makeup from the beginning are getting worse. We need to be allies. We need to make sure that people feel completely welcome. Welcome in our hearts, welcome in this space, welcome in this city, this country. This is up to each one of us. And as I said, I have no formula to offer, but Let's do our best. All right? Hi.